Phase the Sixth, The Convert, Part Three. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Forty Nine. The appeal duly found its way to the breakfast table of the quiet vicarage to the westward, in that valley where the air is so soft and the soil so rich that the effort of growth requires but superficial aid by comparison with the tillage at Flincombe Ash, and where to Tess the human world seemed so different, though it was much the same. It was purely for security that she had been requested by Angel to send her communications through his father, whom he kept pretty well informed of his changing addresses in the country he had gone to exploit for himself with a heavy heart. Now, said old Mr. Clare to his wife, when he had read the envelope, if Angel proposes leaving Rio for a visit home at the end of next month, as he told us that he hoped to do, I think this may hasten his plans, for I believe it to be from his wife. He breathed deeply at the thought of her, and the letter was redirected to be promptly sent on to Angel. Dear fellow, I hope he will get home safely, murmured Mrs. Clare. To my dying day I shall feel that he has been ill-used. You should have sent him to Cambridge in spite of his want of faith, and given him the same chance as the other boys had. He would have grown out of it under proper influence, and perhaps would have taken orders after all. Church or no church, it would have been fairer to him. This was the only wail with which Mrs. Clare ever disturbed her husband's peace in respect to their sons, and she did not vent this often, for she was as considerate as she was devout and knew that his mind too was troubled by doubts as to his justice in this matter only too often had she heard him lying awake at night stifling sighs for angel with prayers but the uncompromising evangelical did not even now hold that he would have been justified in giving his son an unbeliever the same academic advantages that he had given to the two others when it was possible if not probable that those very advantages might have been used to decry the doctrines which he had made it his life's mission and desire to propagate, and the mission of his ordained sons likewise. To put with one hand a pedestal under the feet of the two faithful ones, and with the other to exalt the unfaithful by the same artificial means, he deemed to be alike inconsistent with his convictions, his position, and his hopes. Nevertheless, he loved his misnamed angel and in secret mourned over this treatment of him as Abraham might have mourned over the doomed Isaac while they went up the hill together. His silent self-generated regrets were far bitterer than the reproaches which his wife rendered audible. They blamed themselves for this unlucky marriage. If Angel had never been destined for a farmer, he would never have been thrown with agricultural girls, they did not distinctly know what had separated him and his wife, nor the date on which the separation had taken place. At first they had supposed it must be something of the nature of a serious aversion. But in his later letters he occasionally alluded to the intention of coming home to fetch her, from which expressions they hoped the division might not owe its origin to anything so hopelessly permanent as that. He had told them that she was with her relatives, and in their doubts they had decided not to intrude into a situation which they knew no way of bettering. 
The eyes for which Tessa's letter was intended were gazing at this time on a limitless expanse of country from the back of a mule, which was bearing him from the interior of the South American continent towards the coast. His experiences of this strange land had been sad. The severe illness from which he had suffered shortly after his arrival had never wholly left him, and he had by degrees almost decided to relinquish his hope of farming here, though, as long as the bare possibility existed of his remaining, he kept this change of view a secret from his parents. The crowds of agricultural labourers who had come out to the country in his wake, dazzled by the representations of easy independence, had suffered, died, and wasted away. He would see mothers from English farms trudging along with their infants in their arms, when the child would be stricken with fever and would die. The mother would pause to dig a hole in the loose earth with her bare hands, would bury the babe therein with the same natural grave tools, shed one tear, and again trudge on. Angel's original intention had not been emigration to Brazil, but a northern or eastern farm in his own country. He had come to this place in a fit of desperation, the Brazil movement among the English agriculturalists having by chance coincided with his desire to escape from his past existence. During this time of absence he had mentally aged a dozen years. What arrested him now, as of value in life, was less its beauty than its pathos. Having long discredited the old systems of mysticism, he now began to discredit the old appraisements of morality. He thought they wanted readjusting. Who was the moral man? Still more pertinently, who was the moral woman? The beauty or ugliness of a character lay not only in its achievements, but in its aims and impulses. Its true history lay not among things done, but among things willed. How, then, about Tess? Viewing her in these lights, a regret for his hasty judgment began to oppress him. Did he reject her eternally, or did he not? He could no longer say that he would always reject her, and not to say that was in spirit to accept her now. This growing fondness for her memory coincided in point of time with her residence at Flintcomb Ash, but it was before she had felt herself at liberty to trouble him with a word about her circumstances or her feelings. He was greatly perplexed, and in his perplexity as to her motives in withholding intelligence, he did not inquire. Thus her silence of docility was misinterpreted. How much it really said if he had understood! That she adhered with literal exactness to orders which he had given and forgotten! That despite her natural fearlessness she asserted no rights, admitted his judgment to be in every respect the true one, and bent her head dumbly thereto. In the before-mentioned journey by mules through the interior of the country, another man rode beside him. Angel's companion was also an Englishman, bent on the same errand, though he came from another part of the island. They were both in a state of mental depression, and they spoke of home affairs. Confidence begat confidence. With that curious tendency evinced by men, more especially when in distant lands, to entrust to strangers details of their lives which they would on no account mention to friends, Angel admitted to this man, as they rode along, the sorrowful facts of his marriage. The stranger had sojourned in many more lands and among many more peoples than Angel. 
to his cosmopolitan mind such deviations from the social norm so immense to domesticity were no more than are the irregularities of vale and mountain chain to the whole terrestrial curve he viewed the matter in quite a different light from angel thought that what tess had been was of no importance beside what she would be and plainly told Clare that he was wrong in coming away from her. The next day they were drenched in a thunderstorm. Angel's companion was struck down with fever, and died by the week's end. Clare waited a few hours to bury him, and then went on his way. The cursory remarks of the large-minded stranger, of whom he knew absolutely nothing beyond a commonplace name, were sublimed by his death and influenced Clare more than all the reasoned ethics of the philosophers. His own parochialism made him ashamed by its contrast. His inconsistencies rushed upon him in a flood. He had persistently elevated Hellenic paganism at the expense of Christianity, yet in that civilization an illegal surrender was not certain disesteem. Surely, then, he might have regarded that abhorrence of the unintact state which he had inherited with the creed of mysticism, as at least open to correction when the result was due to treachery. A remorse struck into him. The words of Is Hewitt, never quite stilled in his memory, came back to him. He had asked Is if she loved him, and she had replied in the affirmative. Did she love him more than Tess did? No, she had replied, Tess would lay down her life for him, and she herself could do no more. He thought of Tess as she had appeared on the day of the wedding, how her eyes had lingered upon him, how she had hung upon his words as if they were a god's. And during the terrible evening over the hearth, when her simple soul uncovered itself to his, how pitiful her face had looked by the rays of the fire in her inability to realize that his love and protection could possibly be withdrawn. Thus, from being her critic, he grew to be her advocate cynical things he had uttered to himself about her but no man can be always a cynic and live and he withdrew them the mistake of expressing them had arisen from his allowing himself to be influenced by general principles to the disregard of the particular instance but the reasoning is somewhat musty lovers and husbands have gone over the ground before to-day clare had been harsh towards her there is no doubt of it men are too often harsh with women they love or have loved women with men and yet these harshnesses are tenderness itself when compared with the universal harshness out of which they grow the harshness of the position towards the temperaments of the means toward the aims of to-day towards yesterday of hereafter towards to-day the historic interest of her family that masterful line of d'urbervilles whom he had despised as a spent force, touched his sentiments now. Why had he not known the difference between the political value and the imaginative value of these things? In the latter aspect her Durberfield descent was a fact of great dimensions. Worthless to economics, it was a most useful ingredient to the dreamer, to the moralizer on declines and falls. It was a fact that would soon be forgotten that bit of distinction in poor tessa's blood and name an oblivion would fall upon her hereditary link with the marble monuments and leaded skeletons at kingsbeer so does time ruthlessly destroy his own romances 
in recalling her face again and again he thought now that he could see therein a flash of the dignity which must have graced her grand dames the vision sent that aura through his veins which he had formerly felt and which left behind it a sense of sickness despite her not inviolate past what still abode in such a woman as tess outvalued the freshness of her fellows was not the gleaming of the grapes of ephraim better than the vintage of abizer so spoke love renaissance preparing the way for tess's devoted outpouring which was then just being forwarded to him by his father though owing to his distance inland it was to be a long time in reaching him meanwhile the writer's expectation that angel would come in response to the entreaty was alternately great and small what lessened it was that the facts of her life which had led to the parting had not changed could never change and that if her presence had not attenuated them her absence could not nevertheless she addressed her mind to the tender question of what she could do to please him best if he should arrive sighs were expended on the wish that she had taken more notice of the tunes he played on his harp that she had inquired more curiously of him which were his favourite ballads among those the country girls sang she indirectly inquired of amby seedling who had followed is from talbothays and by chance amby remembered that amongst the snatches of melody in which they had indulged at the dairyman's to induce the cows to let down their milk clare had seemed to like cupid's gardens i have parks i have hounds and the break of the day and had seemed not to care for the tailor's breeches and such a beauty i did grow excellent ditties as they were to perfect the ballads was now her whimsical desire she practised them privately at odd moments especially the break of the day arise 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 and pick your love a posy all of the sweetest flowers that in the garden grow the turtle doves and small birds in every bough a building so early in the maytime at the break of the day it would have melted the heart of a stone to hear her singing those ditties whenever she worked apart from the rest of the girls in this cold dry time the tears running down her cheeks all the while at the thought that perhaps he would not after all come to hear her and the simple silly words of the songs resounding in painful mockery of the aching heart of the singer tess was so wrapped up in this fanciful dream that she seemed not to know how the season was advancing that the days had lengthened that lady day was at hand and would soon be followed by old lady day the end of her term there but before the quarter day had quite come something happened which made tess think of far different matters she was at her lodging as usual one evening sitting in the downstairs room with the rest of the family when somebody knocked at the door and inquired for tess through the doorway she saw against the declining lights a figure with the height of a woman and the breadth of a child a tall thin girlish creature whom she did not recognize in the twilight till the girl said tess what is it liza lou asked tess in startled accents her sister whom a little over a year ago she had left at home as a child had sprung up by a sudden shoot to a form of this presentation of which as yet lou seemed herself scarce able to understand the meaning 
her thin legs visible below her once long frock now short by her growing and her uncomfortable hands and arms revealed her youth and inexperience yes i've been traipsing about all day tess said lou with unemotional gravity a trying to find ye and i'm very tired what is the matter at home mother is talk very bad and the doctor says she's dying and as father is not very well neither and says tis wrong for a man of such a high family as his to slave and drave at common labour and work we don't know what to do tess stood in reverie a long time before she thought of asking liza lou to come in and sit down when she did so and liza lou was having some tea she came to a decision it was imperative that she should go home her agreement did not end till old lady day the sixth of april but as the interval thereto was not a long one she resolved to run the risk of starting at once to go that night would be a gain of twelve hours but her sister was too tired to undertake such a distance till the morrow tess ran down to where marian and is lived informed them of what had happened and begged them to make the best of her case to the farmer returning she got lou a supper and after that having tucked the younger into her own bed packed up as many of her belongings as would go into a withy basket and started directing lou to follow her next morning chapter fifty she plunged into the chilly equinoctial darkness as the clock struck ten for her fifteen miles walk under the steely stars in lonely districts night is a protection rather than a danger to a noiseless pedestrian and knowing this tess pursued the nearest course along by-lanes that she would almost have feared in the daytime but marauders were wanting now and spectral fears were driven out of her mind by thoughts of her mother thus she proceeded mile after mile ascending and descending till she came to bulbarrow and about midnight looked from that height into the abyss of chaotic shade which was all that revealed itself of the vale on whose further side she was born having already traversed about five miles on the upland she had now some ten or eleven in the lowland before her journey would be finished the winding road downwards became just visible to her under the wan starlight as she followed it and soon she paced a soil so contrasting with that above it that the difference was perceptible to the tread and to the smell it was the heavy clay land of blackmoor vale and a part of the vale to which turnpike roads had never penetrated superstitions linger longest on these heavy soils having once been forest at this shadowy time it seemed to assert something of its old character the far and the near being blended and every tree and tall hedge making the most of its presence the hearts that had been hunted here the witches that had been pricked and ducked the green spangled fairies that wickered at you as you passed the place teemed with beliefs in them still and they formed an impish multitude now at Nuttlebury she passed the village inn, whose sign creaked in response to the greeting of her footsteps, which not a human soul heard but herself. Under the thatched roofs her mind's eye beheld relaxed tendons and flaccid muscles, spread out in the darkness beneath coverlets made of little purple patchwork squares, and undergoing a bracing process at the hands of sleep for renewed labour on the morrow, as soon as a hint of pink nebulosity appeared on the Hambledon Hill at three 
she turned the last corner of the maze of lanes she had threaded, and entered Marlott, passing the field in which, as a club-girl, she had first seen Angel Clare, when he had not danced with her. The sense of disappointment remained with her yet. In the direction of her mother's house she saw a light. It came from a bedroom window, and a branch waved in front of it, and made a wink at her. As soon as she could discern the outline of the house, newly thatched with her money, it had all its own effect upon Tessa's imagination. Part of her body and life it ever seemed to be. The slope of its dormers, the finish of its gables, the broken courses of brick which topped the chimney, all had something in common with her personal character. A stupefaction had come into these features, to her regard. It meant the illness of her mother. She opened the door so softly as to disturb nobody. The lower room was vacant, but the neighbor who was sitting up with her mother came to the top of the stairs and whispered that Mrs. Derbyfield was no better, though she was sleeping just then. Tess prepared herself for breakfast, and then took her place as nurse in her mother's chamber. In the morning, when she contemplated the children, they had all a curiously elongated look. Although she had been away little more than a year, their growth was astounding, and the necessity of applying herself heart and soul to their needs took her out of her own cares. Her father's ill-health was the same indefinite kind, and he sat in his chair as usual. But the day after her arrival he was unusually bright. He had a rational scheme for living, and Tess asked him what it was. "'I'm thinking of sending round to all the old antiquarians in this part of England,' he said, "'asking them to subscribe to a fund to maintain me. I'm sure they'd see it as a romantical, artistical, and proper thing to do.' They spent lots of money on keeping up old ruins, and finding the bones of things, and such like, and living remains must be more interesting to em still, if they only knowed of me. Would that somebody would go round and tell em what there is living among em, and they think of nothing of him. If Parson Tringham, who discovered me, had lived, he'd have done it, I'm sure. Tess postponed her arguments on this high project till she had grappled with pressing matters in hand, which seemed little improved by her remittances. When indoor necessities had been eased, she turned her attention to external things. It was now the season for planting and sowing. Many gardens and allotments of the villagers had already received their spring tillage, but the garden and the allotment of the derby fields were behindhand. She found, to her dismay, that this was owing to their having eaten all the seed potatoes, that last lapse of the improvident. At the earliest moment she obtained what others she could procure, and in a few days her father was well enough to see to the garden under Tessa's persuasive efforts, while she herself undertook the allotment plot which they had rented in a field a couple of hundred yards out of the village. She liked doing it after the confinement of the sick-chamber where she was not now required by reason of her mother's improvement. Violent motion relieved thought. The plot of ground was in a high, dry, open enclosure, where there were forty or fifty such pieces, and where labor was at its briskest, when the hired labor of the day had ended. Digging began usually at six o'clock, and extended indefinitely into the dusk or moonlight. Just now heaps of dead weeds and refuse were burning on many of the plots, the dry weather favoring their combustion. 
One fine day Tess and Liza Lou worked on here with their neighbors, till the last rays of the sun smote flat upon the white pegs that divided the plots. As soon as twilight succeeded to sunset, the flare of the couch-grass and the cabbage-stalk fires began to light up the allotments fitfully, their outlines appearing and disappearing under the dense smoke as wafted by the wind. When a fire glowed, banks of smoke blown level along the ground would themselves become illuminated to an opaque luster, screening the workpeople from one another, and the meaning of the pillar of a cloud, which was a wall by day and a light by night, could be understood. As evening thickened, some of the gardening men and women gave over for the night, but the greater number remained to get their planting done, Tess being among them, though she sent her sister home. It was on one of the couch-burning plots that she labored with her fork, its four shining prongs resounding against the stones and dry clods in little clicks. Sometimes she was completely involved in the smoke of her fire. Then it would leave her figure free, irradiated by the brassy glare from the heap. She was oddly dressed to-night, and presented a somewhat staring aspect, her attire being a gown bleached by many washings, with a short black jacket over it the effect of the whole being that of a wedding and funeral guest in one. The women further back wore white aprons, which, with their pale faces, were all that could be seen of them in the gloom, except when at moments they caught a flash from the flames. Westward the wiry boughs of the bare thorn hedge which formed the boundary of the field rose against the pale obolescence of the lower sky. Above, Jupiter hung like a full-blown jonquil, so bright as almost to throw a shade. A few small nondescript stars were appearing elsewhere. In the distance a dog barked, and wheels occasionally rattled along the dry road. Still the prongs continued to click assiduously, for it was not late, and though the air was fresh and keen, there was a whisper of spring in it that cheered the workers on. Something in the place, the hours, the crackling fires, the fantastic mysteries of light and shade, made others, as well as Tess, enjoy being there. Nightfall, which in the frost of winter comes as a fiend, and in the warmth of summer as a lover, came as a tranquilizer on this March day. Nobody looked at his or her companions. The eyes of all were on the soil, as its turned surface was revealed by the fires. Hence, as Tess stirred the clods and sang her foolish little songs with scarce now a hope that Clare would ever hear them, she did not for a long time notice the person who had worked nearest to her, a man in a long smock-frock, who, she found, was forking the same plot as herself, and whom she supposed her father had sent there to advance the work. She became more conscious of him when the direction of his digging brought him closer. Sometimes the smoke divided them, then it swerved and the two were visible to each other, but divided from all the rest. Tess did not speak to her fellow-worker, nor did he speak to her, nor did she think of him further than to recollect that he had not been there when it was broad daylight, and that she did not know him as any one of the marlet labourers, which was no wonder, her absences having been so long and frequent of late years. By and by he dug so close to her that the fire-beams were reflected as distinctly from the steel prongs of his fork as from her own. On going up to the fire to throw a pitch of dead weeds upon it, she found that he did the same on the other side, 
the fire flared up, and she beheld the face of d'Urberville. The unexpectedness of his presence, the grotesqueness of his appearance in a gathered smock-frock, such as was now worn only by the most old-fashioned of the labourers, had a ghastly comicality that chilled her as to its bearing. D'Urberville emitted a low, long laugh. If I were inclined to joke, I should say, how much this seems like paradise, he remarked, whimsically, looking at her with an inclined head. What do you say? she weakly asked. A jester might say that this is just like paradise. You are Eve, and I am the old other one, come to tempt you in the disguise of an inferior animal. I used to be quite up in that scene of Milton's when I was theological. Some of it goes, Empress, the way is ready and not long beyond a row of myrtles. If thou accept my conduct, I can bring thee thither soon. Lead, then, said Eve. And so on. My dear Tess, I am only putting this to you as a thing that you might have supposed or said quite untruly, because you think so badly of me. I never said you were Satan, or thought it. I didn't think of you in that way at all. My thoughts of you are quite cold, except when you affront me. What? Did you come digging here entirely because of me? Entirely. To see you, nothing more. The smock-frock which I saw hanging for sale as I came along was an afterthought, that I mightn't be noticed. I come to protest against your working like this. But I like doing it. It is for my father. Your engagement at the other place is ended? Yes. Where are you going to next? To join your dear husband? She could not bear the humiliating reminder. Oh, I don't know, she said bitterly. I have no husband. It is quite true, in the sense you mean. But you have a friend and I have determined that you shall be comfortable in spite of yourself. When you get down to your house, you will see what I have sent there for you. Oh, Alec, I wish you wouldn't give me anything at all. I cannot take it from you. I, I don't like... It is not right. It is right, he cried lightly. I am not going to see a woman whom I feel so tenderly for as I do for you in trouble without trying to help her. But I am very well off. I am only in trouble about—about—not about, about living at all." She turned and desperately resumed her digging, tears dripping upon the fork-handle and upon the clods. "'About the children, your brothers and sisters,' he resumed, "'I've been thinking of them. Tessa's heart quivered. He was touching her in a weak place. He had divined her chief anxiety. Since returning home, her soul had gone out to those children with an affection that was passionate. If your mother does not recover, somebody ought to do something for them, since your father will not be able to do much, I suppose. He can, with my assistance. He must. And with mine. No, sir. How damned foolish this is! burst out d'Urberville. Why, he thinks we are the same family, and will be quite satisfied. He don't! I've undeceived him. 
the more fool you d'urberville in anger retreated from her to the hedge where he pulled off the long smock-frock which had disguised him and rolling it up and pushing it into the couch-fire went away tess could not get on with her digging after this she felt restless she wondered if he had gone back to her father's house and taking the fork in her hand proceeded homewards some twenty yards from the house she was met by one of her sisters oh tessie what do you think liza loo is a crying and there's a lot of folk in the house and, and mother is doing a great deal better but they think father is dead the child realized the grandeur of the news but not as yet its sadness and stood looking at tess with round-eyed importance till beholding the effect produced upon her she said what tess shan't we talk to father never no more but father was only a little bit ill exclaimed tess distractedly liza lou came up he dropped down just now and the doctor who was there for mother said there was no chance for him because his heart was growed in yes the derby field couple had changed places the dying one was out of danger and the indisposed one was dead the news meant even more than it sounded her father's life had a value apart from his personal achievements or perhaps it would not have had much it was the last of the three lives for whose duration the house and premises were held under a lease and it had long been coveted by a tenant farmer for his regular labourers who were stinted in cottage accommodation moreover liviers were disapproved of in villages almost as much as little freeholders because of their independence of manner and when a lease determined it was never renewed thus the derby fields once d'urbervilles saw descending upon them the destiny which no doubts when they were among the olympians of the county they had caused to descend many a time and severely enough upon the heads of such landless ones as they themselves were now so do flux and reflux the rhythm of change alternate and persist in everything under the sky end of part three